Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the COVID-19 pandemic continues, and we tackle it from every angle. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Great news. COVID-19 numbers are dropping across the country. Our hard work is paying off. Soon we will be hugging shirtless. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There are still some concerns about the very highly contagious uh, now called Delta variant. And is that does that have anything to do with uh, perhaps people being lax or maybe hesitant and and not jumping into that first or even second dose. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman now. Carrie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, all good. So your thoughts on where we are? It's pretty positive as we see these numbers continually to go down. Even the ICU numbers are down. Oh, look, the indicators are wonderful today. Let, let's hope, you know, it's not roller coaster and tomorrow things shift. But honestly, they're very, very good. And I just heard it from you. I think I can go out for lunch on Friday. Hallelujah. Again, yeah. ahead of these uh, guidelines, which we'll, we'll obviously going to hear, um, you know, from where you sit, uh, if you're sitting there with one shot, what can you do? What do you think we should be able to do? Well, you know, the evidence just over and over and over shows that if you're outdoors, it's a completely different game. So, you know, my I, I don't know, but I, I, I suspect that if people have at least one level of vaccination, they probably can mingle uh, in very, very small groups. But again, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist. We'll have to wait and see. But, you know, eventually we're going to have to move forward. We've got so many people that are partially and fully vaccinated. It's got to make a difference so so let's see what happens so we're sitting around 70 percent canadians that are vaccinated which is a pretty high number even if you look uh to other yeah. countries and such and then let's just assume that 70 percent uh if it you know it will probably increase as well but you know obviously uh the, the that 70 percent will also uh get the second shot so with, with say, 75% of, of a country fully vaccinated, uh, do you think we're still going to see some, we're going to experience this? Do you think we're still going to have hot spots and pockets and restrictions yeah. and such? Short answer is I don't know. But, but, you know, let's roll it back to the conversation a year ago. So a year ago at this time, we were talking about herd immunity. We, we talk a lot less about herd immunity now because we're told that, you know, it, it's a concept we may not be able to reach, et cetera, et cetera. But in those early, you know, I, I mean, a year, 12 months ago, we were told that if we hit 70 percent and people debated the numbers, that was essentially herd immunity. But look, that was before the variants. So I think, again, I, I don't know, but I absolutely believe that these crashing numbers like today's numbers, you know, the fact that, you know, within Ontario, Toronto, all the regions, Hamilton, I believe, as well. I mean, you're upwards of 70 percent. So, so you know, this has got to be reflected in the numbers. But, you know, that, that critical point where it really just begins to sort of vanish, it's very hard to say. And, you know, the, the big thing is the global picture. Yes, we're getting better in Canada, and I don't mean to be a wet blanket, but when you look at what's going on globally, there's lots of problems with this pandemic, and they're very serious all over the world. 
Uh, obviously, variants of concern are of great concern. Uh, it seems to be a race between vaccine and the variants. Um, and, and as we mentioned, we are seeing more and more Canadians, Ontarians becoming vaccinated. Are we going to see hesitancy now? Um, well, we, this is the critical point, and we're all with bated breath. You know, we're, we're hitting the low 70s now. And, you know, are we going to plateau the way the U.S. did or... Are we going to just keep trooping along and we're going to head up towards 80? Uh, if we do, it's a huge benefit to our entire society. So, you know, I, I really hope that people that aren't vaccinated now will give this very, very serious thought. Because, you know, the thing with vaccination, it's really and we've all said this a thousand times, but I'll say it a thousand and one. You know, it's not just about me or you and your life and your family. It's also a social commitment to moving forward as a healthier society. And I think that's beginning to resonate. And I think that works for a lot of Canadians. And, you know, what we didn't know before that we really know now, it's not just about all these talking head experts. Uh, you know, I guess I'm one of those. But, but it's also about, you know, what does your neighbor say? What does your brother say? What does your sister say? We're incredibly influenced by people that we actually know and what decisions they've made. So, you know, if you're a person in a family that I'll die before I'll have a vaccine, you know, you may really be doing a lot of damage in terms of your effect on other people as well. You know, it's interesting because, uh, it, you know, I remember when I got my first shot, uh, many were saying, well, put it on social media, talk about it, try to get more and more people. You know, if they say you get it, then maybe somebody else will get it. And then ba 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 and off you go. How do you explain areas uh, that are in hot spots where there's high hesitancy. So, you know, there's been, you know, doubling down of, uh, of, um, of vaccine attempts and, 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 you know, to try to get as many done, but there's still a tremendous amount of, of hesitancy. 27% of adults in Peel, uh, still haven't received the first dose despite, uh, you know, eligibility being there for a while. H- how do you change that? Well, you know, one of the things that we're seeing is, is, is there's the vulnerability factor we focused on a lot. But, but I would say something else. Um, you know, there's the, you could call it almost anthropological. And, and you know, what, what different cultures have different views of what causes health, what causes illness, how it's treated, et cetera. And what we haven't really explored in this pandemic, you know, we are an extremely diverse society. And, you know, within southern Ontario, we have a multitude of, of cultures. And we really haven't done a deep exploration of how the different cultures are interpreting uh, so many things that are being said. I'm not saying that's driving all of it, but it could be a factor with that. Although, you know, most people are coming forward. And then very clearly, uh, you know, when you look at things like, you know, black Canadians, uh, you know, they're really and Americans even more so there, there really has been some major injustices. So, so there's that factor. But even that is getting better and better in Canada. I mean, I, I think we should pat ourselves on the back to some extent, because when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, and I have my fingers crossed when I say this, we've done really well. And if this continues on for even a few more weeks, um, we may really break through and have a much better summer. Our challenge then will be the global situation, and we've got to rethink and really look out to the world in, in, in those weeks and months when we reach that point. 
Uh, do you think we've done as well as we have because we have a tendency to follow what we're told, do what we're told, um, and we're just good Canadians? Or do you think, you know, when you when you uh, make a, make sure that there's short supply, the lineup will always be there? Is this a supply and demand, or was it a supply and demand issue? So once it did come, people were anxious to roll up the sleeve. Yeah, you know, probably a mixture. You know, the Americans would say, and so would the Canadians, you know, that, that, you know, the Americans tend to be seen as the more free spirit people. And the Canadians are sort of going along with things a lot more. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I could be wrong when I say this, but I I see this with my students. You know, I I teach at, um, at the University of Toronto. And for a lot of people, I've heard a lot of people say, like young, healthy students, I'm actually not that thrilled about a vaccine. I'm not even sure I really want or need one. But I need to do this because society's got to move forward. And and I think maybe what's happening in Canada is is kind of this social conscience that, you know, I may not love it, but boy, oh boy, I want I want this society to be okay again and I want older people to not, you know, be in, in such danger. That may actually really be a cultural factor that's driving the Canadian success. And obviously seeing what's happened in uh, happening in other places. I mean, at the beginning of this pandemic, we were quite smug looking to the U.S. at what a poor job they were doing. Uh, yeah. Then they went from zero to 100 in no time yeah. flat. That's now right. we're seeing the Mawashin vaccine and 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 hesitancy uh, slipping in there. Uh, a lot of them have their second dose, but uh, I don't think they're uh, anywhere near 70%, where, which is where Canada is, is pretty no. close to uh, at this point. Are you concerned that, uh, once again, we'll look south of the border and learn a couple of lessons uh, if the variants do take off? Well, we may. We may. You know, they're, they're really plateauing. And what you see, you know, the cultural differences within the United States are huge. You know, if you look at a state like Alabama and you compare it to a state like Vermont, I mean, you, you, these are really apples and oranges. And we, we sometimes miss that as non-Americans. But but and, you know, there's a large swath of the U.S. which where people really, really don't want the vaccine. So, you know, we will see where that goes and we will see where that goes fairly soon. Um, but again, I, I actually think we're going to make some some significant progress in Canada. The other point I want to make is all indications are that, you know, some people would say, well, maybe people have had the first vaccine and they won't bother with the second vaccine. There's very little indication of that. Um, the first vaccine shows very clearly that people are willing to take it. Yeah. And um, the uptake for people going from first to second is very high. And also, who's going to bother with one vaccine? And, you know, what was the point in the first place if you don't complete the cycle? So there's no indication that things are going to just that Canada won't reach its goals with second vaccines. We just need clear and open access, which so far, not bad. Um, and I think we'll get there. So that's that's kind of our weakness right now is we don't have a lot of people that are uh, that are doubly vaccinated. I think we're going to close that gap. I really do. I don't I think there's going to be very few people that are going to take one, but not two. Uh, obviously the United States, uh, have been celebrating. Well, I think the one, the, the, the one instance that stood out for me was the Blue Jays home opener in Texas and when, where there was just a stadium filled with people. Uh, are you surprised we haven't seen them get hit with the virus? Cause a uh, variance. Cause again, we know that they haven't crossed, uh, crossed that magic herd, num- herd, herd immunity number. Are you surprised we haven't seen more, uh, there from, from, uh, their quick jump to open? They've either gotten lucky or or the 
variant or not, you know, or maybe they don't have the Delta variant, you know, as, as much. I mean, I don't know what their testing is. One of the problems with Canadian testing is we're not able to test that well for the Delta variant. So we don't actually know what. And remembering the Delta variant is the one that has ravaged India in recent weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, we don't actually know. But look, you know, I think the Americans are going to be less cautious moving forward. And I think that creates a, a good opportunity for us to look south of, south of the border. I think Canadians will put up with masks a lot longer than Americans would. And, um, you know, we, we'll see how they'll do and we'll learn from it. But, you know, so far, pretty good. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor with the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Pleasure. We'll talk again. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Mike's on the line. Mike, what do you got to say? Well, uh, it's in regard to... Hi, Scott. Thanks for taking my call. My question is regarding the uh, limited outdoor dining. And that is, is that, um, sure, you, I think they're going to say that you can have up to four people sitting at the table, but should they've got to take their masks off to eat at some particular point. So should the four people be limited to the people of the same household? That's a great question. We'll find out more as soon as this does uh, open up. But I'm guessing that enough have been vaccinated that uh, that they might restrict, they might open that up a bit more and include, yeah. uh, you know, people that have been vaccinated. Um, but again, it's, it, it, you know, they, and they're saying, uh, gathering of groups of up to 10 people, they're not saying they have to be family members. So I would assume that it would mean, and again, we're just guessing at this time, but yeah, yeah well, I'm gathering guessing of five that you will bumping that up, but they're still required to wear a mask. So, but when you sit down at a table, you got to take your mask off. To eat yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But again, they, you can have outdoor gatherings and be spaced apart. You don't need to wear the masks. That's going to be at 10 people. So I would assume that that would apply to a patio. But again, we'll have to see uh, when the details uh, finally come yeah. out. Are you ready to finally put this behind us? <laughs> for sure I am. For sure I am. I'd like to go out and have a meal. I hear you. All right. Well, thanks for the time. Good luck. Okay, thanks, Scott. All the best. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Great news as we see case numbers come down. Uh, COVID-19 new case numbers come down. Uh, Ontario announcing that it will move towards uh, its reopening on Friday. So uh, outdoor activities, outdoor patios, that sort of thing uh, will slowly start to open up uh, starting uh, this Friday. So good news for the weekend. Uh, And uh, about time, uh, many are saying. All right, uh, let's move on and uh, talk about the Kamloops situation and where we are now. Uh, uh, obviously, over the course of the weekend, we saw a statue come down uh, at Ryerson University. Uh, many are calling for uh, name removals. Uh, in, in, but as, as one uh, person pointed out, uh, hoping that the the focus isn't lost on that and, and what the original issue was, and that's the 215 uh, remains that were found below the former site of the Kamloops uh, Residential School. So what do we do moving forward? How are we processing this in both communities? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Liam Midzane-Gobin, Settler Scholarship, uh, sorry, Settler Scholar and Assistant Professor of Political Science in, uh, with Brock University, and studies indigenous settler relationships with Canada and is with us now. Liam, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am, Scott. Thanks. Uh, Lovely to be on the show with you. So I want to ask a couple of questions right off the top in, in, in regard to both communities. How is 
the indigenous community processing this now not you know obviously something that they no doubt do about it but even just the way the story is is hitting the mainstream now how is the indigenous community processing this so without wanting to speak for the indigenous community um as you noted i'm a, I'm a settler scholar here but um i think the biggest thing that i'm hearing and i'm seeing is that there's a huge amount of grief that gets stirred up at times like this. Um, I think, especially during the TRC, um, and then also after the TRC, we have heard a lot and finally started to understand as a society the intergenerational trauma that residential schools has really wrecked on uh, the Indigenous community in Canada and, and nations themselves. And so I think at times like this, what becomes really important for us to remember is that every single one of these instances, and, and I can only expect that there will be more if, if the federal governments and provincial governments are serious about wanting to do something and finding other remains. But each and every time, it's going to be a re-traumatization. It's going to be another instance where communities are finally finding out where their kids are buried. They're finally finding their long past relatives and finally starting to learn what really happened to them. And so uh, I don't think that there's really any way to, to understand this except through that that framing of grief and trauma. And we should really expect that that's what it's going to be going forward every time an announcement like this uh, gets made. Uh, are Canadians fully aware of the impact this has on the Indigenous community and that, and that pain you're referring to? I don't think so. Um, it's really or at the very least, it's, it's hard to see that in kind of everyday life. Um, and now everyday life looks quite a bit different, as, as you noted off the top, where we're only now starting to reopen again here in Ontario. Um, and so I know we're all a little bit more closed off, but I think that there's become a bit different of a conversation in media um, around the, the pain and, and the grief that that is uh, that accompanies every single one of these these announcements and these findings. But I think it's really hard to understand what that means on a community level and on a collective level. And so that's something that I think uh, Settler Canada and and non-Indigenous Canadians really need to still kind of sit with and learn to process and learn to really understand what that means um, for for each community. Why is this uh, discovery having the impact that it is and, and this is, seems like a very obvious question but <laughs> yeah. on the other hand truth and reconciliation I mean th- this is not new information it's confirmation but it's certainly not new so why is this having the impact so I think you're absolutely right that this isn't necessarily new um, one of the things that we've heard over and over again, we heard during the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission hearings themselves, and quite frankly, we've heard kind of throughout history, and, and if we think back even um, to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Affairs from, from 30 years ago, we, we knew that these stories existed. Um, and it's not just residential schools, it's also the 60s scoop. And quite frankly, we're continuing to um, commit the same kinds of horrors with the Indigenous child welfare system. But uh, and that continues today. Sorry. But I think part of the reason that um, non-Indigenous Canadians need seem to need to relearn this every single time this, this news breaks is specifically because we don't necessarily have to deal with it in our day to day lives. This isn't um, our trauma that we have to live with. And so I think that it's something that it passes by on the, the nightly news and it's it's something that governments have really made a strong 
put a strong emphasis on working towards or um, or really continuing to work on and continuing to um, make an important part of the relationship and, and the working through this. And so insofar as, you know, we all get busy and we all have other things going on in our lives, this isn't at the top of mind for a lot of non-Indigenous Canadians. And so um, it then is something that can get lost until the next time it comes up on, on TV. And so it, it doesn't become a part of daily life and it doesn't become a part of the collective understanding of ourselves in, in the same way. Do you think up until now Canadians have understood the extent of the trauma, what the community is going through? Because we're quick to stereotype and not really understand. Yet we'll point it out to other societies and other nations but we can't with ourselves. It appears that, you know, we really can't say, well, we didn't know this was going on, but we certainly can say we didn't know the extent of this trauma. Um, and, and, and that's just sad. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, that it's hard because it is sad, but it's also, frankly, allows us to continue repeating the cycle. Yeah. And I think that's maybe... Um, where I think we really need to to focus as well. Like, I think going forward, and if we want to talk about, you know, where do we go from here, I think part of that is actually doing the work to understand and understanding the kind of project of Canada and what that has really meant, both for Indigenous peoples, but what that means for ourselves as, you know, one part of this relationship. Um, we hear a lot about the importance of a nation-to-nation relationship. Um, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau has talked about it, and many others have. Um, we talk about the importance of reconcil- reconciliation and how we're on this journey together. But it's hard to see us as being on that journey if we're not really going to try to understand and internalize what that means for us and what our um, willingness to look past the trauma really means for our repeated behavior in the current day. And um, in that case, yeah, like you said, we're very quick to tell other societies and other other countries kind of what they should be doing. But I think it's really important that we not only look in the mirror, but look in the mirror and not forget what we see and not for not kind of look past that once once we're done in that mirror. Um, because it is something that we see more and more in media and even just us having this conversation, I think is certainly something that you know, is not the norm and hasn't been the norm for a lot of Canada's history. And so I think there's there's some, it gives me a little bit of, of hope that, you know, this is something that we can understand and continue to sit with and live with and, and work on going forward, because that's the important thing. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think the, the real concern is what forgetting it each time lets us continue to do. So how are Canadians processing this in the non-Indigenous community? I think it's a lot of grief and pain as well. Um, and that's the, that's the thing. I mean, you called it sad and, and it's true, but like, that's the sad thing on both sides is that it's not as though Canadians um, want to continue that same system. It's not as though can, Canadians want to see ourselves as, you know, those same colonial perpetrators. And yet, you know, amongst all that pain, there is, I think really, a misunderstanding of what it means today and how we move forward together 
Um, and so we need to be able to use that pain, I think, and that, that pain that we're all, all experiencing and, and the heartbreak, really, that we're all experiencing for, for the families and the communities and really understand how that feeling can be translated into concrete action and that that's really the important thing moving forward. Uh, the Prime Minister has used the phrase transformative change. What, what is that? What does he mean? I mean, obviously, uh, it's his opinion, and he would have an opinion of the term, but um, what is transformative change? Even Jody Wilson-Raybould was, was saying this. It's hard, it's hard to know what the Prime Minister means by that, um, because I think the way that it gets talked about and the way that it gets used uh, rhetorically or the way he says it in speeches sounds really wonderful. But then when we start to look at what that change really means on the ground, there isn't that much of a difference. Um, I had said before that one of the really heartbreaking things to come out of this situation, this um, the context in, in Kamloops and, and elsewhere, as I'm sure we'll be able to see, is that really it's the continuation of a system that has killed Indigenous children and has put Indigenous children really at the at the center of our colonial project and that frankly it continues to and so when we think about transformative change and what that can look like that means actually building a meaningful relationship and actually showing up and actually not just providing for indigenous kids but working with communities so that communities themselves are able to make decisions and have the funds that they need to take care of themselves and take care of their their children and their youth and frankly, the government has chosen instead to go to court again next week to continue to fight to not actually compensate uh, victims of um, the child welfare system. And so enlighten us with that, doctor. What is explain to people what these cases are about? Sure. So so right now, um, the Canadian. Well, I'll say Dr. Cindy Blackstock has done an incredible job. She runs the First Nations Child and, and Family um, Caring Society. And basically, there is a, um, there's what's called Jordan's Principle, which is that when First Nations specifically, but Indigenous peoples broadly, um, who are the responsibility of the federal government, um, they're going to seek care at a series of different um, institutions. They're not always going to have kind of the federal government be able to step in and, and support first. And so there's been a jurisdictional fight between Ottawa and the provinces with neither really wanting to pay the costs of uh, caring for those children and that, that system itself. And so right now what the federal government is doing is they've gone to court again um, to argue that they shouldn't be on the hook for those costs. And they certainly shouldn't be on the hook for compensating families who they wouldn't fund the care for. Uh, and so um, Cindy Blackstock is really uh, there. I think it's 14 and 0 right now against the federal government. There is an active Canadian Human Rights Commission ruling that the federal government must step up and pay uh, equal, equal amounts for services for Indigenous youth. Um, and must compensate uh, past victims. And the government continues to try to um, use legal technicalities to minimize how much they have to pay or just outright not pay at all. And so this situation and the fact that even next week the government's going to be going to court on that um, tells me that that transformative relationship or that, you know, the need for transformation isn't really being felt and isn't making its way all through the government. 
how, how doesn't that fly in the face of truth and reconciliation? How, uh, you, you know, and, and let's give the prime minister credit where credit is due. He has certainly brought more of these issues to the forefront. There's certainly lots of ceremony. There's certainly lots of, of chatter, which is, I mean, that's, you got to start somewhere. Um, yeah. Does he get credit for that, however, just not driving it home? Because, again, um, it, you know, it, with with truth and reconciliation, it seems he's overpromised and underdelivered. Yeah, I think that it is really important that we talk about it. And I, as I said before, there's been a real shift. In, and I think that shift is really intensified as the government and, and the prime minister specifically has been much more willing to talk about the importance of the relationship. Um, but that talk becomes cheap really quickly when you've been in power for six yeah. years and not really done yeah. too much. Um, there are some some things like the the, the Languages Act that um, has, was recently passed and, and the moves to implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples would be, I think, really important if it goes forward and if it is given the, the adequate attention. But it's really important that we don't just focus on that transformative change when it hits the news. And I think that um, if we want to build a meaningful relationship and if we really want to make um, this grief and this trauma and this experience something and try to tra- translate that into actual concrete and lasting action, it means building that relationship um, genuinely and cooperatively. And that is something that, that I don't think we've really seen and something that I think every Canadian does want to do and every Canadian really needs to start holding any government to account. Because the reason that we're only getting this news now is because the government of Stephen Harper decided not to spend one and a half million dollars to search the grounds of, of each residential school using this kind of technology. And in, in, I believe it was 2009. So, you know, it's not it's not just Justin Trudeau, um, but certainly I think governments of all stripes have been pretty quick to to ignore this over the years when it's when yeah. it's convenient for them. Yeah, I don't think anybody gets a passing grade there. <laughs> no, um, no, nobody's covering so- themselves in glory. So uh, obviously over the weekend at Ryerson, I saw the statue come down. Uh, others have been defaced, what have you. Where, where does that go? Where, where do we go uh, from here? I remember initially saying, and this is just how my opinion has evolved, um, as I giggle, you know, with embarrassment more than anything, um, you know, I remember having uh, this discussion in, in, well, why don't we keep the statue up but equally put up somebody else of prom- uh, prominence from, from the opposite side of the story and make sure that this sort of thing uh, is told. Uh, then on the other hand, um, as I'm looking at these statues, I'm thinking of how people feel in the southern United States about the Confederate flag. And how some it means victory, and others it's it, it means slavery, uh, and them viewing that flag uh, causes them great deal of pain. So where do we go with this moving forward, as as far as whether it's renaming institutions or statues or such? Your thoughts? So I think um, one of the things that is really important to keep in mind, uh, and trust me, I, I hear you. I'm I'm a scholar, and certainly I want that preserved right like i don't want to to erase this history at all um but i think it's really important that we remember that building names and um, monuments are not historical devices necessarily these are these are situations and these are um these are these are monuments to people that are there to celebrate them and celebrate what they represent and their ideas and so when we start seeing calls for statues to come down or we start seeing calls for buildings to be renamed, 
um, that I don't think should be taken as, um, you know, an attempt to ignore our history because that history isn't going away. It's history we have to live with. Um, and so I think what, what we should understand is that it comes down to this question of who we really want to celebrate and what as a society and as individuals, what ideals we really want to look to going forward. And so when we start thinking about um, the ideals of somebody like Ryerson or Sir John A. Macdonald, I don't think it's possible to ignore their role in the, the building of the Indian residential school system. It's not possible to ignore the way that um, they really legitimated a system that sought to take Indigenous peoples' territory and, as Duncan Campbell Scott is uh, infamous for saying, kill the Indian and the child. That was the explicit purpose of this system. And we continue to see the same kinds of echoes of this today. And so when we start thinking about what we want to do with these names, um, and here in Hamilton, there's uh, a motion that's been put forward to the, um, I believe, to the public school district by, by one of the trustees to rename Ryerson, um, uh, the school named after Ryerson. And so when we start thinking about who we want to be celebrating, I think that it's really important to remember uh, that it is the celebration. It's not uh, a point of remembrance necessarily. And mm. so, well, um, yeah, sorry. Um, I'll play devil's advocate here. Uh, those that would say this is cul- uh, count, uh, cancel culture. I think that that is, I mean, this isn't cancel culture. I think cancel culture, culture as um, the way it's popularly discussed is more often an attempt to really undermine the kind of truth behind a lot of that history. Um, I don't think it's possible for us to say that we're canceling Sir John A. MacDonald or canceling canceling Ryerson or canceling Sir Duncan Campbell Scott. Um, These are figures who will be remembered and will be studied for years to come. And we're certainly not going to forget somebody like Sir John A. MacDonald. They're not getting canceled. What's happening is we as a society get to make a conscious choice about who we're going to venerate and who we're going to celebrate. And so I think it's um, the cancel culture argument to me is a bit disingenuous, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I think it is meant to preserve a certain vision of our history and one that, um, quite frankly, um, is the reason why we continue the kinds of systems and the kinds of inflicting the kinds of traumas that we do today. Dr. Liam Midzane Gobin has been with us, settler scholar and assistant professor of political science with Brock University, uh, studying indigenous settler relationships within Canada. Liam, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You too. Stay safe. Going to take a quick break here at 127. News is on the way with more details on Ontario starting to reopen this Friday. And the Pope addresses Kamloops. We'll talk about that coming up after the news. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alex is on the line. Alex, how you feeling today? What's on your mind? I am feeling excellent. And I'm, uh, I have, have empathy for all the people that this uh, situation is affecting. Now, uh, as I told your uh, producer, a friend there, uh, uh, there's other people getting away with murder here. I believe the Anglican Church uh, is very heavily involved. But it's the Prime Minister, what really threw me off is the churches, the Anglican and the uh, Protestant and the, uh, the Catholic, were under the direction, were they not, of the Canadian government. And it was their 
the Canadian government's uh, uh, idea for all this, and 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 they're not taking responsibility. And uh, since when has the prime minister given the, the indigenous people up north the water that he promised before the election? Like I don't trust what's going on with our government. And 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 a little offshoot, I was I witnessed personally. Uh, the uh, radar penetrating uh, happening at the school in Brantford where two archaeologists and a defrocked Anglican minister discovered the remains of bodies. I was there. I witnessed it. It was tragic. And it's just coming to light now. That was seven years ago. And the, and the, and the defrocked minister, as he, back then when he showed everybody, he was put down as a conspiracy theorist. He lost his job as a reverend. Uh, his name's Kevin Annette, and he is one militant person right now. And I, I, I can't believe the Canadian government would say, "Well, it's the Pope's fault," and they want an apology from the Pope. Hey, man, like everybody's got to apologize for this. Well, I just let me correct you there, Alex. Uh, the Anglican Church uh, has apologized, and and uh, they did. You're right. Run uh, a certain amount of the schools, along with the Presbyterian Church, I believe. But it was a Catholic Church that ran over seventy percent of them, and they are the only ones not to have apologized. They're the only ones not to sort of acknowledge it. That's why you're not hearing as much of the others, is because they've they dealt with this a while ago. Whereas it's it's always been a sore spot that the Catholic Church uh, has. So you're listening to the Scott Thompson show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. Mariana Velvedere is a professor at the center of criminal uh, criminology and social and sociological studies at the university of Toronto and a fellow at the Royal society of, Can- of Canada and is with us now. Mariana, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh yes. Thank you. Um, we, we certainly know of this case in Kamloops now. We certainly are aware, shocked, disgusted, uh, use all the words. Um, but at what point does this, where's, is there criminality here? At what point does this go beyond truth and reconciliation and the indigenous and the Canadian community? Is there criminality here? Um, there could well be, which is why some people are saying that residential school sites should be considered crime scenes and investigated. But I think it would be very difficult to know now whether a particular death was the result of a crime or a result of disease. And you could say the fact that a lot of the kids who went to residential schools got TB and died of it is sort of a systemic crime, if you will, but um, I don't think you're going to find a lot of evidence of uh, um, actual homicide, the kind of thing that a forensic anthropologist might find. So I think we need a different way to think about these things and not get into the sort of CSI modality. Um, And you're Your caller just now, I think, made a very important point that, yes, Justin Trudeau is saying, oh, the Catholic Church, you know, should apologize. But the Canadian government at all levels has been subcontracting public work to the Catholic Church since well before Confederation. And they continue to fund Catholic schools in many parts of the country and Catholic-run orphanages and so on. So we should look at what the government's 
agency and responsibility is here too and not just the Catholic Church. Uh, Alex brought up a good point, um, and you're reiterating that, that, that the Canadian government involved as well, uh, of all political stripes, uh, all the way through history. So who was, who, who is responsible for the objective of the residential schools? Who's, um, who's responsible for the day-to-day running of of the of the residential schools and and how much involvement did the Canadian government of the day have in the running of those schools? Well, um, they didn't have much involvement in the day-to-day running, just as they haven't had a lot of involvement in the day-to-day running of Catholic school boards and you know Catholic orphanages all over the country and not just in Quebec. So. The government will say, well, we didn't know what they were doing and we're not responsible. Mm -hmm. But as your first caller rightly said, it was the government that set up the residential school program as a policy. It was the government that had the RCMP go around to indigenous communities seizing children and forcibly taking them away. So the Catholic Church didn't go around seizing the children and taking them off, you know, somewhere, they wouldn't have had the legal authority to do that. So the government of Canada is ultimately responsible, even if they then subcontract the actual work to, um, to uh, you know, to religious orders. So the government can't sit back now and say, or even back then, hey, we didn't give anybody the authority to abuse anybody. That's not what we were trying to do. Yeah, well, in general, governments were, you know, relying on uh, both Protestant and Catholic charitable organizations to run what later became the welfare state. So, uh, you know, whether it was schools, orphanages, uh, old age homes, hospitals, whatever, um, all of these were you know, perhaps staffed by um, Catholic nuns or priests or whoever, but it was the government that made the decision to, um, you know, contract this out to, um, you know, the churches or or to, you know, religious institutions. So they're ultimately responsible, um, you know, just as if, there's a contractor who's doing work somewhere. Well, they have some responsibility, but if the city hired that contractor, the city would have some responsibility too. So why, uh, so in your mind, uh, the, the, the government, the prime minister is using the Catholic Church as a scapegoat here. Not that they're certainly not responsible, but you think that this is a distraction. Yeah, I mean, it's very convenient Um I mean, not that the Catholic Church shouldn't take some responsibility, too. Yeah. And yeah. I I think, like a lot of Canadians, I'm upset that this pope we have now, who's supposed to be a little more progressive, and also he's from South America, so he knows about the evils of colonialism. It's very unfortunate that the pope doesn't want to apologize formally, and that's probably because the Vatican's lawyers are saying don't admit anything. Um, so that's really unfortunate. But to just say that, oh, the Pope should apologize. 
really is, um, you know, trying to pass the buck because, as, again, your first caller said, everyone need, has some responsibility and everyone needs to apologize. Yes, the Catholic authorities should apologize, but so should n- not only the federal government, but the provincial governments too, because they long farmed out um, what was essentially public education to, you know, religious entities, especially Catholic ones. Uh, and are we, uh, is the Pope becoming the distraction here? Because from what I read in the Globe and Mail, they were saying it's the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops that has to instigate this, and then they approach the Pope, and and then the Pope, uh, the Pope issues the apology. But I, from what I understand and what I've read there is the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops, this is the bishops in Canada, don't want the apology. Why would that be? Well, because the Catholic bishops are, again, busy making sure that they avoid as much legal liability as possible. I mean, they already have had to pay out to, um, you know, survivors of sexual abuse in various parishes. Um, Mm -hmm. And the Catholic bishops will tell you that, oh, well, we don't have control over the religious orders. And it is true that the Catholic Church is highly fragmented, so that a school run by the Sisters of St. Joseph or whoever isn't directly under the control of the bishop. They have this sort of parallel structure that goes all the way up to Rome, but only to the head of their order. Um, So the bishops will say that they weren't responsible for the vast majority of the schools that were run by nuns and priests. And technically, they're, you know, correct, but they should still make a statement um, and not be so afraid of, the, you know, what the lawyers are probably saying to them right this minute as we speak. Is this all about money? If the Pope apologizes, therefore admitting guilt, therefore restitution? Um, that might be how some, you know, some people are sort of looking at it. And certainly some of these religious orders used to be very numerous and have lots of wealth and lots of new recruits coming in with their own wealth and so on. Uh, but many of those orders now just have a few elderly people. Um, you know, there's not nearly as many nuns and members of male religious orders as as there used to be. So they're probably trying to count their pennies to, uh, you know, look after their elderly people. As for the bishops, I don't think they have a lot of excuses because um, they still, you know, control a lot of money and assets, especially in real estate. Um, So they could be looking at it from the point of view of money, or they could be just looking at it from the point of view of legal, you know, liability, although, you know, really, if the Pope apologized on behalf of the whole Catholic Church, I don't think anybody would try and sue the Vatican. I mean, you wouldn't get very far anyway. What about records? Because obviously we're hearing, you know, records are shoddy at best, or if there were records, uh, some have been destroyed, some are still being held. Uh, we understand we understand by the church, and and why would we assume not by government? 
Um, but obviously, that's what's needed, too, is records, ID, information on all of this. Um, is there a way to put pressure on those religious organizations, the church specifically, to release those records? Uh, yeah. I mean, an easy way would be to just get a court order. Um, and certainly in the case of uh, burials that are unmarked, I'm sure you could get a judge to issue a court order. But the problem here is that, again, there is no Catholic Church of Canada. I mean, there is an Anglican Church of Canada, and they have records, and they have made many of those available to the survivors and to First Nations. Uh, But with the Catholic Church, the diocese has records of the parish churches in their diocese, but they don't necessarily have the records of what the sisters and brothers of, you know, whatever order were doing. So it would need a court order that would be fairly specific to, you know, whoever was running that school. And it it could be that some of those religious orders don't even exist anymore. I don't know the details, but it's very difficult because of the fragmentation of the legal structure of the Catholic Church. Where does this investigation go? Over and above the healing that has to go on between uh, Canadians and the Indigenous community, where does this investigation uh, in Kamloops go? Uh, Obviously, 215 remains confirmed, but as, as you've said and many others have said, there's other sites. No reason to think that there aren't others there. Uh, how do you move forward in this? Obviously, it's up to the community and on on how they want to move forward, uh, whether it's a case of, of marking these these graves or, or even exhuming uh, bodies. So uh, how do you move forward with this? Um, well, I think it's up to the First Nations in, you know, the different parts of the country, whose kids were taken to, you know, whatever residential school, it's up to them to think about what they want. And I just hope that governments, um, you know, lend them some support, whether it's technical support to investigate the burials or other kinds of support, because, um, uh, I mean, this whole problem started because Indigenous people were treated as if they were um, either children or even worse, animals that, that had to be herded somewhere and trained and socialized. And uh, so anything that happens now should be led by indigenous people themselves. And I mean, that does seem to be happening in some parts of the country. And I hope it keeps happening. And then, uh, you know, if if those indigenous indigenous leaders and communities say, hey, you know, we could use this type of technical expertise. Um, I hope that governments will then be responsive to those requests. But governments should kind of stand back and, you know, pay attention to to uh, the requests by indigenous leaders instead of jumping in and saying, oh, we're going to, you know, sort of do it all. Yeah. Um, Mariana, what about uh, statues, institutions that have names of residential school architects? We saw what happened with Ryerson's statue 
uh, over the weekend. Um, what, what should happen moving forward there? Uh, yes, well, I think it's too bad that the uh, higher-ups at Ryerson didn't already think that it would be a good idea to take down that statue because they waited so long. You know, I'm, I, I understand they have some sort of process for thinking about whether they should rename the university, mm-hmm. but, you know, they sort of took too long. And so, um, you know, the statue was brought down by activists, and, you know, I wouldn't want to blame them particularly because if I were Indigenous and I were a student at Ryerson, I would be so angry Um so, I don't know. I mean, I think each institution needs to do its own reckoning. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an awful lot of Canadian history that needs to be retold mm. from the point of view of the losers rather than the winners. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I've been initiating a mini-campaign of my own at... U of T on the university campus because there's a big plaque to a former president of the university after whom a residence is named, Daniel Wilson. And the plaque says that he was heavily involved in the debate about women's admission to universities. And he was involved, but on the wrong side. He tried for years to keep women out and not have women get U of T degrees the government of Ontario had to force him to uh, admit women. Well, that's certainly a plaque that should go, as far as I'm concerned, and I think we should rename the residence after, you know, one of the great women academics at U of T. So I think each place, each institution needs to do its own reckoning, and, uh, um, you know, whether it's City Hall uh, in all the municipalities, or whether it's the province, or whether it's universities or museums, I mean, there's a lot to be done. And I think um, what I should the prime minister do about Trudeau Airport, for example? <laughs> there's a good one. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Pierre Trudeau had his flaws, but I don't think he can be sort of quite tarred with the same brush of genocide as Ryerson and McDonald. So I don't think that would be first on anyone's list, but, um, but, you know, but, you know, the day could come and, uh, you know, certainly there's very few public entities, infrastructures that are named after indigenous people or after women for that matter, because, Hmm. There aren't any airports in Canada that are named after women, but many of them are named after men. So even Good that point. would be a start. But as I said, I think each institution needs to sort of try and think about what we have learned, especially during the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and all of these you know, movements. And each institution needs to say, okay, how have we represented ourselves to the public and how should we do it sort of going forward? 
Mariana Valverde has been with us, professor at the Center for Criminology and Sociological Studies at University of Toronto and fellow uh, of the Royal Society of Canada. Mariana, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay, thanks. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.